Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. God help you if you use voiceover in your work, my friends. God help you. It's flaccid, sloppy writing. I don't want you to be the guy in the PG-13 movie. Everyone's really hoping makes it happen. I want you to be like the guy in the rated R movie, you know? The guy you're not sure whether or not you like yet. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. I am Jeremy Fisk, and as always, I am joined by Chapin Hemingway and Lee Carlo. Uh, this week, we're going to be checking out uh, Paul Schrader's uh, movie First Reformed, starring Ethan Hawke. Um, then we're going to have a discussion about uh, writers who turn directors. And then we're going to top it all off with our top five church scenes. I've decided to keep a journal to set down all my thoughts and the simple events of my day. I will keep this diary for one year, and at the end of that time, it will be destroyed. I encouraged my son to enlist. It was a family tradition. Six months later, he was dead in Iraq. I was lost. My sense the reading of the Lord. Praise be God. Oh, I'm fine. No, really. It's been a while since we've talked. Even a pastor needs a pastor. Did you see the doctor? You need someone to take care of you. I want you to be happy. I know that nothing can change, and I know there is no hope. Reverend Toller? Yes, Mary? You must come over. You must come over now. So, guys, uh, I think what interested us about this movie and why we wanted to go see it was because a sort of icon of the of 70s film, uh, Paul Schrader, who most famously, as I mentioned in the intro, uh, wrote the screenplay to Taxi Driver. And here he is um, writing and directing this movie, uh, First Reform, starring Ethan Hawke, who plays a preacher that has a disturbed past, um, disturbed in the way that uh you know he was divorced he lost a kid um and he's sort of trying to cope with uh both his past and the future uh the future of religion the future of the world and i always find it very interesting when films try to delve into religion and spirituality because it's not necessarily a thing that comes across in the cinematic universe uh, easily to an audience. It's a hard thing to capture um, faith and spirituality and and show it through a cinematic lens. So my question to you guys is, how, how do you think Paul Schrader did with taking something um, like this movie as far as its um, spiritual importance and and showing it to an audience. It's a good question. Um, I was thinking about that in a kind of in a different way um, before before we started recording, and it was it had a little bit more to do with how he tied religion into, I think perhaps the bigger message he was trying to convey here, uh, which has to do with climate change and the state of the world and um, kind of where the church falls uh, within that in terms of its responsibility. Um, and I gave this movie a lot of credit for the way it did that, but I gave it to the writer of this movie, which was also Paul Schrader. And it's interesting. We certainly think of Paul Schrader as a writer because he wrote Taxi Driver. He also wrote Raging Bull. He wrote um, Last Temptation of Christ, a handful, a handful of other movies, but uh, most notably movies that Martin Scorsese uh, directed. And interestingly enough, he's directed just about as many movies as he's written. So he's he's if when you break it down, he's not essentially you know, known more as a writer than a director when it comes to his credits. I think just the pedigree of the films makes a difference there. But I felt like watching this movie that we were watching something that was coming from a very good writer, but not necessarily something that was coming from a great director because 
that kind of tying those things together that I mentioned, I don't think was portrayed particularly well. I don't know how well that answered your question, but that was sort of the way I I was thinking about it. I guess what I'm leading to, and it it does answer my question, but what I was leading towards is I felt as a writer and a director in this movie, it was a bit of Paul Schrader's stream of consciousness. He wanted to talk about all these different subjects between um you know abortion war global warming religion philosophy and he he, he's like i don't know how to really deal with it and his answer was talk about it have the characters just sit down and talk about it now is that something that you guys felt compelled to or or interested in as a viewer or did you find it in pardon the pun a bit preachy i mean i thought it was i thought it was there i did feel kind of what you were saying this movie did lack a little bit of nuance but i don't think well i should i i didn't it didn't feel preachy but i i did write down that if 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 we were to tell our audience that you know in back-to-back weeks we were going to be podcasting about black Klansmen and and first reformed uh and that first reformed was the preachier of the two movies. I don't think they'd believe us, but I do think that is sort of the case, but it didn't come across as a, as disingenuous in any way. Like you did sort of feel him in the fabric of the story and like, or you felt kind of his feelings towards all of this there for sure. Yeah. I think it's um, going back to your original question, Jeremy. um, I think that, they and and sort of touching your point, Lee. They they do talk a lot about religion and um, I mean I wouldn't call this movie like a talky movie, but I think what you're saying is so much of that stuff is conveyed in you know in dialogue. Um, but I thought it was interesting that you've got this movie that is sort of ostensibly about faith and it's a subject matter that as we said has been discussed in the movie throughout but um the style for most of the movie is a very i mean it's shot in four by three so it's like a tv style aspect ratio the camera doesn't move a lot it kind of has these long fixed takes where the camera doesn't move um but then really the only time you have an experience that's sort of out of body that's kind of like you know um, some, I guess like the closest thing to a religious experience is that sequence where, um, you know, to sort of spoil the movie, um, Mary and, uh, Ethan Hawke's character kind of have a sort of non-sexual touching where they sort of lay on top of each other and kind of have a kind of meditative sort of, I don't know what you'd call it, like a, uh, uh, Magical mystery halluc- tour. Yeah, like a hallucination or something. Um, and it's mostly seen through the Ethan Hawke perspective, but I, I think to me that kind of absence of importance and, and, and absence of imagery up to that point, and then it, it sort of contrasted with that sort of extraordinary scene um, kind of conveyed to me that sort of that the 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 doubting of faith the lack of faith that ethan hawk's character was experienced and i don't know that that's exactly what was supposed to happen but that's kind of how i read into that particular sequence see that's where i think this movie had a little bit of a struggle because i think it was you know i i read it with kind of ethan hawk's arc as not so much like questioning his his faith so much is is more is like you know questioning more like what what responsibility does he have as a faithful person and as a religious person and a representative of a you know of a church and a religion and feels like he owes it to the world essentially to kind of be a you know uh, uh somebody to kind of stand up and and point these things out because you know he's a preacher and and so on and so forth. But I think where this movie struggled is kind of starting perhaps with that scene that you just referenced, Chapin, where it it kind of, it leaves the realm of reality that it had been in the whole time 
and starts to make you kind of question it on a unrealistic front. And to me, you know, this movie didn't need that. And once you started doing that, then I think that led to kind of the, you know, interpret interpreting the ending, the last scene of the movie, which I didn't particularly like. Um, and I think that's where the movie started. I feel like that's where the movie started to show the signs of a weaker director to me. Because I think on paper, all that stuff probably works. See, I, I think it's I think the fault of this movie lies in the screenplay more than... Oh, I'm the complete it, more opposite. In, yeah, more than in the direction. And the reason is, I, as I alluded to earlier, it was it, I feel like this movie was just like too on the nose with... The, with the themes it's trying to deal with like literally that 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 big first scene where um ethan Hawke's character sits down across from um michael right that was the guy's name yeah yeah he sits down across from michael and they literally it starts with like abortion that's what they want to they're there to talk about and it then goes into this whole thing about global warming which of course does come back and then he starts, you know, trying to give him, he's like, I'm not a religious man. Um, I mean, the wife's name who's pregnant is Mary. I, I just feel like he, he, he had so much to say and so much to talk about, but had no real way of expressing that in a cinematic, uh, in a cinematic way that he kind of got stuck on having he got stuck on having to just have the characters sort of express their opinions of it. And I don't know, to me that kind of got overbearing. And especially with the global warming stuff, which obviously is maybe the most important you know, thing of our time, um, but it's such, such not a cinematic, at least in the way that it was presented here, it's not a very cinematic topic. It's sort of hard to to sit through those conversations because they just there's not it's not an easy way to to show this to the audience in a very interesting or cinematic way so i i think that's all true and i think the reason i think i give the screenplay credit and the and him as a director less credit is because you know this deals with a lot of similar things that his other movies do i mean you can draw tons of parallels to taxi driver the character yeah. with the inner turmoil that feels like he needs to fix something or clean something up in 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 a sort of a big way um and what some of the great scripts that schrader has written has is martin scorsese taking that script and adding that nuance or you know going over it and creating those subtleties because you're right like a lot of this stuff is they come right out and say or it's on the nose and it does try to maybe cover too many, you know, major important things going on in the world at, at one time in the two hour time limit. But I think ultimately I, I like how he sort of framed all of those things into the structure of this priest kind of just managing, if not preaching at a, you know, tourist church that's run by, you know, this huge conglomerate, um, you know the and it with big oil that he has to like google what it does and then it ties back it felt like a different movie at that point a little bit but i sort of liked the you know that the representation of like how you know corporate america has taken over everything up including religion and you know and it's you know this sort of I don't, this doesn't focus on the Catholic church. I think it has, um, I know Paul Schrader was raised, um, uh, in Calvinism and, but you know, the, the, the money in the Catholic, in Catholicism and, and obviously many other religions and Jehovah's witnesses and Scientology even is, is exorbitant and I think plays a huge factor in perhaps the decisions that are made by, each one of those churches and i think that's represented here and i i think all those things are done really interestingly they're not done particularly well and that's why i think like i said i think that's where the director comes in i don't want to go yeah. around in circles but yeah, it's no, interesting I that we are I mean, on complete opposite sides of the argument 
I, with, I just think that maybe a good director, a good director would have taken some of that stuff away and 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 done it in a different, you know, maybe taken some of those lines of dialogue away and and, and tried to find a visual way to communicate some of it. Yeah, I I think like sometimes we get. Uh, Lee, I think I figure it's it's something you kind of you seem to get sort of hooked on these on these issues with movies that things little things that annoy you and and they and they seem to kind of have a strong uh, they 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 tend to tank movies for you the uh, people talking in English in the in the uh, Russian accents being uh, the prime example Um, but I, I. I don't know. I I didn't mind the frank, the sort of on the nose frankness of the dialogue in this. I felt like it was people talking about. I didn't really it, either in this movie. It was like deliberate, you know. It was, and the movie was very deliberate in a way. Um, and I, I well, didn't. Ethan Hawke deserves a lot of credit. He was so good. In he this was. Role, I thought. Yes, he was. So. He was fantastic. And I and but, um. And it's interesting because I I I I watched this and I was admiring. I mean, this this movie has a very deliberate style as well it's 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 the way it's shot the sound design it's very sparse um but <clears throat> to me what was interesting about that is that you you know Lee, you as we decide as we do we were in our group text trying to figure out what to discuss in the movie or about the movie and you were talking about how he was a writer and you know and but you kind of alluded to the fact that he's a little bit of an inexperienced director which i think after some further research is not true yeah i um, realized that too <laughs> but he, i i started to fixate on that and i was like you know what like when i I, but I did start to think about him at, in that context of being an amateur dire- director. Like he, he like th- that style was so conspicuous. It was so obvious. Like the things he was doing, I liked them. I responded to them. I, I appreciated what he was doing, but they were very obvious to me. Um, and then I just started to think like, like would a better director have made those would a better director have made those choices? Would 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 they have made it made the style less obvious? Like, is that is the, you know is it a good thing that we notice these stylistic quirks? And is it good that we're thinking about you know we sit down and we 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 try to watch these movies with a little bit closer eye than the average viewer, and I find that you know it's nice to watch movies like this because it's obvious what the directors are trying to do. Um, but I don't know that that's good filmmaking. I don't know that that's the the best way to convey kind of complex ideas. And from what I'm sort of getting from you guys is that this sort of obvious dialogue that was that and these these plot points that were conveyed to us in this kind of matter of fact way would have been better maybe explained in sort of a visual language. And you know he didn't really do that. He was sort of sort of stuck on this very rigid almost, you know, as you said, Calvinist kind of a staunch visual style, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I, so you mentioned that, you know, you don't think it's particularly good filmmaking when those choices that the director is making are obvious. And I, I absolutely think that's the case. And I, I hate to bring this up, but I had listened to the director's cut interview with him back around the time that this movie came out since we're seeing it a little later. Right. And he went and he was discussing some of the choices he was making in particular. um, The thing he focused the most on was the idea of withholding devices that a director can use um, where you essentially aren't giving the audience much. And he made a good point that like he, he was suggesting that movies are begging for us to like them. So they swell music or they have sex scenes or whatever it might be. And that's absolutely true. And it made a lot of sense. And then he started talking about the things that he was doing in this movie to sort of withhold that from his audience and the lack of music and not moving, not moving the camera. And I think all of those things are, that that all makes a lot of sense. And it was sort of a revelation listening to that or having heard that. And then, you know, seeing it in this movie and thinking back and, you know, and I was like, yeah, that's all true. But I'm noticing it and maybe that's because I'd heard the interview so perhaps but I wasn't thinking about it at the time and it's weird that I'm noticing that the camera's not moving or I'm noticing that there's no music like I feel like that should all be very natural and organic right 
Right. I mean, I think that that's an interest. It's 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 an interesting conversation to have, right? Like we are so used to a kinetic, you know, cut, cut, cut kind of style of filmmaking with, you know, elaborate camera moves, cranes, music, all all the tools, the, you know, every the, the every little uh, uh, cinematic convention being used at at at, at any given moment. Um, so we notice it when it's not. So that you know, maybe that's a reflection of the movies we watch. But I, I do. I, I mean, I think my and your reaction is goes beyond that. I think that that his style was so, and this movie was so. I don't know. I don't know what the, what the the right word for it is, but it was like it was so heavy. I would say like it was like it was it was it was almost as if he couldn't escape it at the end. Um, I don't mean the end of the movie, but like you know, while making the movie, he couldn't just kind of get over that and. Um, you know, it, it makes things like that sequence, um, the effect of it I, to me is that it makes that sequence that I, the, the, the magical mystery tour sequence and this, the, the very last scene feel stand out maybe more than they should. I mean, obviously they're intended to stand out. Right. But, um, but they don't feel like they're part of the same movie in a right. way. Yeah, I I agree with that. I mean, especially that the what we're calling now the magical mystery tour scene. It, I was like, all of a sudden, I'm in a combo between the Big Lebowski and 2001: A Space Odyssey. Yeah, and, and I mean, I don't want to. I I liked that sequence in the context of the movie, but yeah, I mean, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jeremy. No, I was just gonna agree. Like because of everything you guys said and, and what Paul Schrader was trying to do, as far as his directing style and not putting those flourishes in basically that helped with the tone set a very specific tone for this movie a tone that as you're saying Chapin he had a hard time escaping when he needed to get out of it um so I, I found that interesting and I also found it interesting he was almost having a hard time escaping his own cinematic past and I felt like this movie, although it dealt with subject matters that are very relevant today, this movie could have been made at any point. It could have been made during the 70s. It could have been made two years after Taxi Driver. Mm -hmm. It, you know, it, it felt very much like it was kind of timeless that way. Um, reverse but, timeless <laughs> yeah it was weird but also dealing with like the same exact themes as like taxi driver even even repeating some of the same exact shots as taxi driver like when he um puts the pepto-bismol in the whiskey yeah and there's some shots when he's driving around at the end that, and when he's yeah. driving around yeah it's, i mean it's like he's grasping onto something that that he was able to do successful then and he and he, well, he didn't even do, he didn't even do the shots in taxi driver. right but it, like he still hasn't been able to purge that from himself because that's that sort of stuff is still obviously at the forefront of his mind and it's obviously very important issues um you know so i i kind of felt the weight of the past with that thing as well yeah I, I think that's a really good point and it's interesting because evidently this is a movie that uh, well this movie kind of uh, became of a story or an idea or something that he always like wanted to make but knew that he never could or something i don't know in this the in the director's cut interview he made it he, he put a whole lot more importance on it than than probably it has to, um but you know, he talked about it like, you know, this was finally the script that I told myself I'd never write. And then I wrote it and made it. And, you know, it's interesting because like it, it clearly is holding on to his past and a lot of these elements. And look, that's something that we credit directors and writers for and, and you know, having or, or essentially being auteurs and like having these common threads. But, you know, you you guys are have been alluding to it a lot is that it's it's they don't all fall in the same movie like you know that scene where he's driving around all of a sudden there's music this is right after you sort of get this this reveal which actually really hooked me when he's talking to amanda Seyfried to mary um and you know uh, insisting that she doesn't come to the um to the church ceremony coronation the yeah the, and 
and now now he's driving around in this like it's misty out and there's like blue lighting and there's music playing and all of a sudden it's that scene in taxi driver and it's another movie just as if just like the magical mystery tour scene was right out of the big lebowski yeah well yeah i'm sorry go ahead jeremy well i was gonna i was gonna turn the page and talk um because this whole conversation so far has been about schrader and his um you know his decisions as a director and a screenwriter um but i was curious what you guys think as um character development um if you guys bought the turn the drastic turn that this character makes and um you know when we touched upon the acting a little bit but uh, i'd be curious to hear yeah i mean i think um i think that ethan hawk it, it is the best thing about this movie um but I uh, I thought he did that. That Schrader did a really great job, both in directing and writing, in keeping his turn a little ambiguous. I don't, I you know, I wasn't convinced, you know, even up to the second to last scene that he was actually going to do it. You know, until he put the vest on and you know buckled the the uh, you know connected the wires on the vest. I wasn't convinced he was going to do it. Um. But I should say, and, and, and I don't want to deny uh, you guys the answer to, 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 the, to the question you just asked, Jeremy, but like I struggled with this. Like <laughs> I have the, you know, I, I've been thinking about this since I finished the movie last night and then all day today in preparation for the podcast. I, I've been struggling with the fact that I, I actually really, really enjoyed this movie. I liked it a lot. I admire it a lot. Uh, I, I kind of voiced my sort of nitpicky uh, criticisms of it, but for the most part, I was on board. But really the thing I just and, – and the magical mystery tour scene, I actually kind of enjoy that as I said. I, I just do not – did not understand the the very last scene. Um, that's what I didn't buy, um, that turn, which I, I was completely out of left field and then kind of was the last thing you were left with. And I was so – I was so shocked. I mean, you know, he might as well have blown up the church. I would have been less shocked than the ending that we actually got to, which was – uh, spoiler alert that he and I guess Mary get together in the end. <laughs> um, and yeah, have a, it's have almost a... hard to spoil it because it's so almost, it's like an abstract painting. I mean, we're, the end of it. Yeah. Like he, 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 he decides not to go through with, you know, blowing up the church and instead wraps himself in barbed wire. And, you know, I don't know if his intention is to reveal that to the parish or, or, or whatever, but, um, she enters and you know this this movie where the camera hasn't moved the whole time suddenly is spinning around the two of them as they embrace and you know kiss and make out um, and before that we've had no indication I mean th- there's been some suggestion that he has started to care for her but seemingly in a non-romantic way um, and yeah I mean that I was so I was so shocked by and I mean maybe that's intentional. I don't know. Like, like that's the alternative to him blowing the church up. I'm, I'm not sure. What, what was your guys' thoughts on that? Well, I'm, I'm a hundred percent with you on, uh, his arc, um, and the way that he progresses. And again, like you said, I, I wasn't convinced either that he was going to go through with this plan, um, to, you know, wear the suicide vest. Um, and it, lost me in the same place where he he sees mary going into the the church and takes off the vest and i i don't i didn't understand the barbed wire piece like it's this sort of self-sacrifice without you know you know killing himself but then he pours a glass of drano to kill himself and the interpretation that admittedly was lost on me but makes sense now that i look back uh, on the ending of this movie is that he did in fact kill himself and Mary showing up is a dream or or his you know his last imagining as he's dying um, and what makes that or what allows that to make sense for me is um, when uh, when Jeffers or Jeffers Jeffers played brilliantly by Cedric Kyles um, tries to go into his house the door's locked but then somehow Mary was able to get in. Um, so the suggestion is perhaps that she never did get in. So that th- there's the interpretation that I heard about this movie. But like you, Chapin, that was totally lost on me. 
Um, the ending didn't work. I, I, I hated that they were kissing at the end. I mean, the, the, you know, there's always those movies that you say it's, it's best when the two don't get together. And this was one of them. And whether or not that was a fantasy uh, or reality, I don't think matters. I feel like that it was out of place. Yeah, um, I wish I could help you guys out with this ending, but it's it's so asinine to me that I, I don't even know where to start on it. Um, I think Schrader knows what he's doing. I think he had a definitive... If you were to ask him, he would have a definitive answer as to why uh, he ended it the way he did. But as a viewer, you're kind of left you're left wondering what the hell just happened and that's n not in a good way not in a like oh maybe this maybe that it, w it was just sort of a i'm lost i'm like i i'm lost i feel like it, i i the last five minutes have negated this whole movie i just sat through in a weird way yeah and it was frustrating because i so i watched this over the course of uh last night and this morning and i when I shut it off last, so the probably, you know, just shy of two thirds of the movie that I watched last night, I was kind of like, God, this is a slow hour and 53 minutes. And I was enjoying it enough. And, uh, you know, I, I felt like it was some, some good scenes with some, with the plot moving along nicely mixed with some intermittent, you know, kind of unnecessary exposition or, you know, needless scenes, you know, him writing in the diary. I never really, never really came full circle. I'm not sure. I mean, without that, though, you would you, you wouldn't be able to explain anything. I mean, the writing in the diary, but he didn't was, was all exposition. Yeah, but it didn't apply a ton to what was going on. I don't think you really needed it. But either way, like I was sort of on and off on the movie, and then I had to shut it off. And I went to bed, and I, and I could not wait to finish watching it the next morning, which was weird because I wasn't particularly excited or high on it while watching it. But I was enjoying this progression of Ethan Hawke character, and and it, it it Hawke deserves a lot of credit. And you guys probably know I've never been particularly high on him. I loved him in Boyhood, but that was one of the first movies I really saw him in, and I thought he was great. And I, again, here I thought he was just absolutely fantastic. And I don't know if he has changed or if I have changed or what it is, but I loved watching his progression and just about every scene in the movie he convinced me with the exception of the one scene with esther where he sort of goes bad guy on her um and kind of tells her to f off which felt out of place but everything else was so was so natural and it was just it was interesting to watch regardless of how it ended until the, the way it ended yeah i mean it's tough to um talk about an ending which we fully don't understand um well that's an interesting question then i mean you you had a re uh, lee i assume you read that about the door being locked uh yes so I that mean, was yeah and it was sort of breaking down like different interpretations of the ending and that was sort of the 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 conclusion on on what it was either that or it was real um you know the there weren't, well, there yeah. weren't a lot. Well, no, it was it was <laughs> right. It was, he's either, either dead or he's not or not yeah. real. <laughs> right. No, but it was it was uh, it was giving that it gave that kind of clue as to why it, it didn't make sense that you know um, that he was he, that uh, she was in there. But then the flip side of it was that well, she's Mary, she's pregnant. You know the whole you know Mother Mary tie-in, and she's sort of his savior in that way, and she saves his life by coming in so maybe she kind of was there you know it doesn't matter how she got in the point is that she was there to save his life in a spiritual way or you know so there were two sides of the the story of course and i don't know i i sort of buy the you know the fantasy element of it perhaps more than the you know the real the the real version where he you know doesn't kill himself but you know like i always say it's always it's never a good thing when you have to, you know, read something to give you an interpretation. Maybe that's, you know, our, our lack of, you know, astuteness, but. Right. Well, that's interesting. I mean, you know, weirdly enough, I, I, and maybe it's because this was sort of filmed and, and kind of 
yeah for, for presented in a way weird way as a as a horror movie i ha- i thought back to hereditary while i was watching this um and i had a similar feeling like i was watching it and there was this like you know yeah it, <laughs> that, that's really that's really creepy i was i was um i was had a similar wa- viewing experience in that like you know i think both movies are pretty slow kind of they kind of languish through you know through their scenes and you don't quite know where it's going, um, but it, I was always compelled in both cases, and a little bit more and first reformed um, by the idea that you know you'll you you will. I think in the case of Hereditary, it was you know what what is actually happening to these people, like what what is going on here. Um, but in First Reformed, it was more you know what is Schrader after really, like what what is what is all this that we're watching all this were kind of being put through. It wasn't necessarily torturous because I, you know, enjoyed it. I think it's a beautifully shot film, but it's, it is a movie that you have to kind of bear with, right? Um, it's slow. It's testing your, um, your patience and it's challenging you. Um, and I was intrigued by that because I was excited to see where it would end up, um, at the end, like what was going to happen, you know, both to the characters, but also as, as sort of a cinematic experience beyond, you know, the story of the movie. Um, but then, you know, now uh, reflecting back, I kind of, I think I left the, both those movies with a feeling of, you know, as we said, as like you were saying, Jeremy, eloquently, a good metaphor, you know, going through a buffet, but not have, you know, feeling hungry at the end of it, you know, like it was a compelling experience, but not particularly satisfying at the end. Um, and I don't know. I think that was probably just because of the ending for this movie, but I, and and rather it speaks to sort of the emptiness of Hereditary in general. But do you guys have any similar thoughts? I mean, I think no, it's I, an interesting comparison. Yeah, but the ending yeah. of Hereditary lost me way more than the ending of this movie, despite the fet that I didn't like it. Yeah, no, I know. I I feel more favorably about this movie than Hereditary, and I I do agree that. Um, you know, I, I I left the movie feeling well, feeling lost, but also feeling um, a bit shortchanged. And and I think the reason I felt a little bit shortchanged was because I definitely, as a viewer, and you guys, let me know if you feel this way too. I I have like a longing to watch movies like this that deal with these sort of. Um, topics and subject matters and are these slow burns and introspective movies about loneliness about the world and i i want i want to watch more of these movies and i find them intriguing i just want them i want them less on the nose and and maybe dealt with a little bit more gracefully but i did i did walk away with from this movie like appreciating and longing for more like it Not every movie can be tree of life, Jeremy. Well, thankfully. No, I think I think you're absolutely right, and and I I would go even I would go farther and say that I I think I even long for movies that are successfully executed in this way, right? Like, not just talking about the same topics, but like I I would love for a movie to be compelling in using the I mean in sort of successful on all fronts you, you know with the that the apps what, what was the tools he was saying lee like the 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 tool the the it, it, the withholding devices yeah, yeah the withholding music, devices yeah not moving your camera long yeah. takes things like I've, that i would you know i love i would love to see that be a more used phenomenon and like i think we've experienced that before right like we like annihilation was a good example of that right where we kind of i mean i know you jeremy were pretty much like totally writ that wrote that movie off but I, and for the most part it was unsuccessful for me but you watch it and you watch the way the filmmaker does things and you're like okay this is effective on a sort of scene by scene basis and if it's done right it can be really effective and i feel that way about first reform too i just think that the sort of inconsistencies and in this this things we've discussed are you know make it less successful and ultimately um you know did i you know this is not a four star movie as a result Yeah, and I think we often see, you know, those devices used well, but, you know, like you said, either on a scene-by-scene basis or, you know, one of them's in this movie, another is in another movie, and it's very difficult, I think, to tie that all together. And, you know, I think 
you know, the best example of it that I can think of is, and I don't know what movie I did this in, but um, well, for argument's sake, just because this is what's coming to mind, let's say Children of Men, you know, the really long extended take he has at the end. You know, you're yeah. watching, you're watching the best, when those are, d- those types of things, and that's another, you know, p- kind of device, I think, um, or withholding things from an audience because you're not cutting and telling the audience what to look at, is... You know, I, I remember getting like two thirds of the way through a scene like that and being like, shit, when was the last time there was a cut and rewinding to watch it again? And when when that happens, you're like, that's worked perfectly into this movie. It it the it's in, it, it's not a director showing off. It's not a director saying, hey, here's a device to make to not get, you know, to withhold some information from you. That's a device using all the tools in his belt to make the best movie he can. And I think that's sort of the difference, but it's hard to, you know, throw all those, use every single one of those tools for one project and not have it be evident. And I think maybe that's kind of what was happening here. And the fact that Schrader sort of bragged about it in his interview is I think further evidence of that, that he's sort of trying trying to do too much. And that's why there are some good scenes here. There is some good filmmaking, but ultimately it doesn't all tie together and become you know kind of the movie jeremy that you were identifying which are some of the best movies ever made you know when yeah. they're done like that so he's, this is two weeks in a row to do. where we're uh, talking two weeks in a row where we're talking about a movie like if if x y or z was just done a little bit better but the tone of the movie was the same and everything else we'd be talking about the best movie ever and i don't know if our standards are too high or if we're just asking too much from these movies or what but well, yeah, but also, but but at that same token, Jeremy, you identified last week, and I think we kind of figured it out midway through the podcast that the sort of conventional and sort of enjoyable way that that Spike Lee made um, Black Klansman helped helped you and helped us, I think, and, and me. It kind of I, it was something I realized once once we started talking about it made that experience more sort of cathartic for us, you know, and. Um, it didn't sort of challenge us the way that that uh, first reform did, and so it's weird. Like uh, that that kind of juxtaposition is an interesting thing that you know, I think we you know we should explore more on the podcast. I was thinking a little bit about you know um, filmmakers that we we know of more for their writing uh, that you know um, go behind the camera and and direct a movie and. I think, you know, obviously we've realized that Paul Schrader perhaps doesn't totally apply to that, but uh, I was thinking about a couple movies in particular, one being um, recently from uh, Aaron Sorkin. I knew uh, you were going to bring this up. He directed I, Tanya. Molly's no, Game. No, he didn't. Mm-hmm. Molly's Game. <laughs> the other the other uh, movie with the woman that came out last year. Um, another uh, movie with the woman. What what four, note is this? Forty two fifteen. And then the other movie that came to mind, and it's been years since I've seen it, and I only saw it once, was uh, Synecdoche, New York, from Charlie Kaufman. Um, and I don't know how I don't know totally how you guys felt about either of those movies, but I, for me, it felt like this was since those were both the first movies that you know very well-accomplished and respected writers directed, they were they were sort of major misses. And it made me think like, okay, just stick with what you're good at. And I'm sure there's more examples and, and I'm sure there's examples of the contrary as well, but I'm wondering why writers perhaps struggle behind the camera more than say maybe an actor who goes behind the camera and directs. And it's probably not a perfect argument because I'm sure there's examples of both on for both on both sides, but I, it got me thinking a little bit. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, I think that it speaks a lot to the, the role of the writer in Hollywood in, in sort of modern movies. And, and they are, I, I often think about them and I have a lot of sympathy in it and I, I feel bad for, for writers. I mean, they are so their services are so sort of, I mean, I'm sure that they make a lot of money and are paid well, but it's it, they. It, you can tell by the way Hollywood sort of hires and fires writers and and stacks them onto projects and brings them on to do dialogue polishes and stuff. They're they're sort of their role is discounted. I mean, even though they are sort of valued and um, 
you know often used uh, quite a lot. It, you know, you, you don't you don't say, oh, we got to get this writer really, and, and to do you know to to stay on this movie and see it through. It's the writer isn't the isn't the person with the vision, um, which is strange because that's where all these ideas originate, right? I mean, TV is famously a writer's medium, but. Um, I don't really, I don't really know why that's the case. You know, maybe it's they're they're more script dependent. But um, I just remember, and I'm sure you guys had the same thought when you made your movie. I think there's there's something convenient about being a writer, the sort of the writer of your material and, and the director, because you can kind of, you don't, you're, you know, you can be, you can, you don't have to be precious about the material. Like, um, I think that's it's it's sort of a, a you you feel like it, the opposite would be true, but you can be on set and throw out lines and say different things and and say yeah don't worry about saying that or or you know don't worry about this plot point it's not important because you of your understanding of the story or whatever, um, and so I wonder if when you, and but you know that, to me that's always been from the perspective of a director who also writes going from someone who writes to also director I wonder if they feel a preciousness about their scripts because they've been toiling away in Hollywood where, you know, their work is constantly shit on constantly rewritten, constantly sort of devalued and changed and rewritten and, you know, you know, reviewed and touched by and changed by other people that, you know, once, you know, the only time when they can actually get their written word, what they do best, I would imagine in their minds is to direct their own material. (laughs) That's a good thought, and you just they don't ultimately get that, you know, um, objective set of eyes. Yeah, I think also you have to distinguish the roles, and obviously we're we're dealing in a visual medium, um, and the way that maybe their brain works um, as as like accomplished writers, may, maybe it's tougher for them to turn to turn the page and flip that switch to then taking their material and turning into what is essentially, you know, showing it as a visual. So I don't know if that has anything to do with it. I mean, I look at somebody like McDonough, who's a writer's writer. I mean, he wrote, I mean, he's a playwright first and foremost, and then a screen uh, screenwriter, and then decided to take his material and direct it. And I think you could see, you know, advancement, at least in the directing, uh, his directing style over his last few movies, even if maybe uh, you don't think they've gotten better uh, <clears throat> in total. But as a visual director, I think he's he's made advancements from uh, In Bruges to Three Billboards. So I think it's like it, maybe even if you were to ask him, I think it, it has to do with figuring out your visual voice because you you know you you have a strong written voice, but you got to figure out the visual voice, and and that's not always obviously it's not easy to do, or you know there'd be more writer directors. Did you did either of you guys see Molly's Game? I did, yeah. So I think that applies very much to what you were just saying, Jeremy, because you can sort of draw the comparison between a movie like Social Network and then Molly's Game, which Sorkin obviously wrote the screenplay for both, but Fincher directed and kind of added that visual element to Social Network in a very successful way. And Molly's Game is, is so much voiceover. You might as well be reading the book. And it's it seems like a writer was putting that movie together you know the the scenes didn't play out in a visual way um and ultimately that's what hurt the movie and i and i think you're right i think they're the way sorkin's brain works is as a writer into in and essentially telling where the director comes in and has to show you and i think you know that that's maybe that's part of the answer yeah, it's such, an, it's such an intriguing story that he tells in Molly's Game, and I agree with you. It's just, it's so kind of conventional and easy the way that that movie unfolds um, yeah. that it, it just becomes, like, <clears throat> I think that's a good point. Like, you, you just, you don't, like, the like again, um, goes back to kind of what I was saying for Mission Impossible. Like, you want the literacy of the movie to be in the images. You know, you don't want... And it goes back to this, you know, to, to first reform too. Like it's, it's not, 
you know, can, how the more you can say with your camera, the more you can say with the tools you have at your disposal that aren't that isn't dialogue, um, the better because you're 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 showing, you're not telling, as you said, Lee. Lord, I'm not worthy to eat your flesh. Not worthy to drink your blood. Not worthy to drink your blood. Okay. Okay, I just come out of confession, right? Right. And the priest gives me the usual penance, right? Ten Hail Marys, ten Our Fathers, ten whatever. Now, you know that next week I'm going to come back and he's going to just give me another ten Hail Marys and another ten Our Fathers and... I mean, you know how I feel about that shit. Those things, they don't mean anything to me. They're just words. Now, that may be okay for the others, but it just doesn't work for me. I mean, if I do something wrong, I just want to pay for it my way. So I do my own penance for my own sins. What do you say, huh? That's all bullshit except the pain, right? The pain of hell. The burn from a lighted match increased a million times. Infinite. Now, you don't fuck around with the infinite. There's no way you do that. So our top five this week, we went relatively broad and we just said our top five scenes in churches top five scenes in churches church scenes Get church up. scenes Shoot um so i don't know if there's any um explanation to this but uh i'll let uh Chavin, why don't you start us off okay yeah i didn't really have much criteria um i have a i have a sort of an interesting relationship with religion that i won't go into here but i needless to say i, I was not raised um religious but my um but i I've, i have often found um churches to be um for the most part nice places to be in um i i visited a lot of them with my parents when, I, when we traveled um, i think i saw every gothic church in france with my parents which at the time i was you know in my teens and was not particularly happy about but am um grateful for the experience i guess in <laughs> retrospect sorry <laughs> um i'm grateful for the experience but uh i've always found them to be sort of sort of calm kind of um thoughtful places and i think the scene weirdly enough that kind of captures that for me is the scene where Kevin McAllister meets the old man next door in Home Alone. Um, yeah, the he's Christmas there, music huh? and with the Christmas music being sung in the background. Yeah, like he's he's there and he's I don't think he's particularly religious either, but it's a place that we kind of identify as being a community place. The church is r- rather empty. It's late at night. It's before he pulls all his awful deeds and, you know, kills two men 10 or 15 times in real life. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think it's a very, it's a nice scene and it captures for me, um, what, what a church is like, at least what I like about a church. I'm sorry. The most religious scene in movie history for children. Home alone. All right. I, uh, I like you had, uh, very little criteria, if any at all. Um, curious how my list will be received by you guys because i'm not even sure how i receive it but my number five i don't doubt will get scoffed at a bit but i like this scene quite a bit um it's a movie that i've always liked um perhaps not quite as much as when i first saw it when i was you know perhaps more of a hopeless romantic than i am now as a married father um, <laughs> <laughs> really it weighs heavily on you yeah <laughs> But uh, it is um, the scene in Love Actually when Keira Knightley and Tuatel Ejiofor are getting married. And uh, Tuatel Ejiofor's best man has arranged for the, um, the audience to play them off with All You Need Is Love by the Beatles. And I always thought that scene was, was nice. And it was, you know, I'm sure been replicated at actual people's weddings since then. Um, Ugh. But I don't know. It, I, I thought that scene worked. And, you know, for me, it kind of was a representation of that, you know, what that movie is. It sort of, you know, puts a little twist on your cliched, you know, love stories, um, all while putting together a pretty good soundtrack. All right. My number five is in the vein of uh, First Reform. It is um, a longtime collaborator of Paul Schrader. It's Martin Scorsese, who also deals with religion in a very similar way. Um, 
in this scene is the beginning of Mean Streets mm. when they introduce Harvey Keitel's character Charlie. Um, he's in a church praying and then complaining about, um, you know, how many Hail Marys and rosaries he's going to have to do no matter what he does. Um, and you could tell that, I mean, obviously, Scorsese struggles with his own faith in a lot of movies. I mean, he, between this movie and um, Last Temptation of Christ, I mean, you can you could probably point to um, different scenes in every one of his movies um, that deals with faith. Um, so this is my pick for number five. I couldn't think of a Scorsese movie, and I, Mean Streets has been forever since I've seen it. So um, that's why I didn't think of that one. But mm. I, like you were like you were pointing out, like he I know has you know tied religion and his faith into a lot of his movies over the years. But I couldn't think of a scene that took place in a church. And I'm like, this this can't be. There has to be one out there. Sure enough. Yeah, I mean, I had to rewatch that scene before this just to get caught back up on it. But yeah, I did remember it. Okay, uh, my number four is going to be a. It's it's <clears throat> it is the Godfather, the baptism scene at the end of the Godfather. It's a cliche uh, pick, yeah. but um, the great you know sort of juxtaposition between the baptism of what was Sofia Coppola, but supposed to be the young, I think son or daughter of um, Al Pacino's character. And, uh, or I think that's right. Um, And uh, the sort of wiping out of all the Corleone enemies, um, which is of course a classic scene and, you know, much copied, but never truly uh, replicated. Am I up? I'm up number four. So this I could be cheating a little bit with this, but this is a great scene. Um, it is <laughs> that's all the criteria is anymore. <laughs> that's all I had. <laughs> um, so this is uh, the scene in the church bell tower in Saving Private Ryan with Barry Pepper taking out all the Nazis before he gets uh, cannoned by the tank. I like. And he's yeah, I was of, trying to think of uh, Saving Private Ryan. And he's quoting the Bible verses as he's shooting everybody, and I felt like that was the little piece that allowed this to make the cut. Because he is in a church, essentially. It's an abandoned church, kind of a uh, destroyed church. But he is in one, which was my only technical criteria. Um, but the, the added piece of the Bible verses um, uh, with his character is great. And he's he was always you know a cool character in that movie. Um, but that's a great scene. Good that pick. whole scene in general is great. But that little piece um, in particular... Uh, my number four is a writer-director I just mentioned. It is um, the beginning of In Bruges, In Fucking Bruges with you, um, when he kills the priest uh, in the church and accidentally kills a little boy. Is that actually at the beginning? <laughs> I, killed, I killed a kid. Uh, it is. Oh, no, actually, they flash back to it. You're right. They flash back to it about third of the way Shit, I, can't, I can't believe I didn't think of that scene either kill the little kid kill the kid okay uh, that's um, hilarious my number three I wanted to go for a. am going for a sort of a plethora of different types of churches here designed wise and I'm going to go with the country western style church in Kill Bill volume 2 where the bride is dispatched by Bill do we ever know? Do we ever find out Bill's last name? No, I don't. That's a volume good question. two. <laughs> Bill, volume two. <laughs> Tarantino. Yeah. Uh, so that's my number three. Yeah, number three. It's a great pick. Yeah, great pick. Honorable mention. All right. Uh, I'm, I, I'm allowed to say honorable mention. Save it for the end when I can cut it out. <laughs> All right, my number three comes from Rocky Two. Uh, it is a scene uh, when Rocky's wife Adrian is in a coma um, after giving birth prematurely to their child, and he's spending the duration of that time in the hospital chapel. And Mickey comes in and kind of gives him a little pep talk about how he needs to start training better for. Uh, his fight and the the scene 
is credited to Burgess Meredith, who I don't think gets a lot of credit for his performance as Mickey in these movies. And what's particularly interesting about how he does in this, what he does in this scene is how he, he sort of opens the scene by, you know, being very delicate in understanding the, what, you know, the, the situation Rocky's in and not wanting to disturb him or upset him by bringing up the fight. But then he just sort of like launches into how he needs him to start doing better and just gets more and more emotional about it and tell him he needs to fight this guy hard. And then he kind of stops himself and he says, okay, I don't want to get, I don't, I don't want to get upset in a biblical place. And he calms himself back down and then he gets all worked up again. And then he says, okay, I'm just going to sit with you. And it's just such a kind of ebb and flow of emotions that he goes through and, you know, Sylvester Sloan is just sort of sitting there contemplating it. But he sort of just makes that scene all on his own, like a three-minute monologue of sorts. But uh, definitely a highlight in a, a, you know, a much inferior Rocky movie than the first. But uh, a, a scene that really works. Well, I wasn't going to come up with that, so good pick. <laughs> Swap that one out from, from your number one spot. No, I really I wasn't. That one was not going to be on my list. Um. But what is on my list is um, the end of The Graduate. I feel like it's been on a bunch of my lists. Uh, but when she's getting married and he's banging on the glass, uh, basically telling her not to. My number two is um, the shootout in the Southern Church in The Kingsman. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, for Kingsman. For fuck's sake. Um. So for those who don't know, the Samuel Jackson triggers a sort of zombie kind of effect in everyone in the church through their cell phones or some shit like that. Um, and they all start attacking um, the king from the king's speech. What's that guy's name? Colin Firth. <laughs> what? Colin Firth. Colin Firth. Um, and then he literally kills everybody in the church very viciously with bullets um crosses stabbings it's so um, good it's played out in one shot to one of my favorite songs of all time <laughs> is it one uh, shot really though i don't know it's not it's it's they they've hidden it but it's yeah. uh it, the um it looks like one yeah yeah uh whatever that song is called free bird by leonard skinner it's an amazing scene it's um, so good <clears throat> all right but so my number two though um it might be the first and only time this this movie ever shows up on a top five um but it you know chapin where you've had uh, a lack of church going experience i've had an abundance of it in many different forms um and for much of my uh high school years it was in the evangelical sense and i saw quite a bit of the um you know, preaching that goes on and the behavior that goes on in churches like that. So there's a scene in the movie Saved um, from 2004 Epic. with uh, Patrick Fugit and Mandy Moore, um, where it's the start of the school year. They're all sort of pumped up and excited about God. And, and um, you know, they start saying, OK, stand up if you want to be saved. And, you know, the, the first guy, it's always a few minutes before the first one has the courage to stand up. And this is all very accurate. And he stands up and everybody cheers. And then, of course, several people follow and they huddle in a circle and pat each other on the back and, you know, dance and all and whatnot. And then Eva Murray stands up and starts like spewing, spewing things in tongues to sort of mock everybody and starts kind of convulsing and i had to rewatch the scene to remember this part but it's actually pretty brilliant when macaulay culkin who's also shows up in this movie this is she kind of yells out she's gonna show her boobs <laughs> <laughs> and he's legitimately excited and then patrick fugit is like she is gonna show her boobs um uh. and that piece was just kind of the cherry on top for me not, not the boobs she never does show him um but uh you can you can see those in Californication, but um, what is this, Mister Skin? <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> but uh, no, I, you've seen that show. Everybody's like, "Thank you very much." <laughs> Everybody clicks off. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I have the boring list because my number two is the scene in "There Will Be Blood." Fuck. With the uh, yeah, well. I guess Chapin has it as his number one. Well, there are two. Uh, there are two scenes. Well, there's a few scenes. Uh, I'm talking about the um, 
the one in the uh, wooden church there with Daniel Plainview and uh, what's the guy? What's the kid's name? Paul Dano. Paul Dano. I wanted to say Patrick Fugit, but I knew that wasn't right. Um, Give me the blood, he... Lord. Yes, exactly. So that's my number two. How was my Daniel Day Lewis impression there? That was also a clip, right? Yes. Yes. Brilliant. What does he say? I forsake, I, I forsaken my boy. <laughs> He's not Santa Claus. <laughs> okay. I've abandoned my boy. I've abandoned my boy. Uh, All right. Uh, well, I'll switch mine up. Mine was there will be blood, and but I will go with, and I can't believe that you guys haven't put. Maybe it will be your number ones. I don't know. But the uh, the old uh, marriage sequence in the Deer Hunter, which was controversial in our 100th episode. All right, so my number one, I'm also going to have to switch out in lieu of Kingsman, The Secret Service. I'm going with the scene in the Blues Brothers uh, when they go to the church and decide to get the band back together, and Jim Brown is singing. Is that who that is, right? Jim Brown? Does that sound right? No, isn't Jim Brown? No, Jim, Jim Brown's Jim a football player. Jim Brown is, a Jim Brown is the football player. You think yeah. about James Brown. James, James Brown. Brown. Easily yeah, Jim. confused. I call him, I call him you Jim. You call him Jim. You're on a first name <laughs> basis with that yeah. dead singer. <laughs> his, his, his friends call him Jim. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> that could have been worse. That could have gone worse. Um, and let's not go there. But uh, yes, Blues Brothers... That's a movie that I really love. Um, and in that scene, they are listening to James Brown sing and preach and then sort of in a out of the realistic elements of the scene kind of looks at them and and kind of tells them, asks them if he's, they see the light. And John Belushi says, I see the light and they got to get the band back together. And they start backflipping down the down the aisles and. You know, good tie-in. We recently lost Aretha Franklin, who's also in that movie, so... My number one is High Noon. There's a scene in High Noon where Gary Cooper is trying to recruit anyone to help him save the town, and he goes to the church thinking maybe that'll be the best place to do it, and uh, it doesn't work out well for him. That's a movie I need to see again so much. It's been so long. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's a great Western, and it's one that I believe was on my revisit list. Um, I think it was on mine, too. Is that the uh, best place to pick up people to help you shoot other people in a church? (laughs) Yeah, because it's back in the olden days when... Yeah, that was sort of the Christian thing to do. Yeah, that's like protecting the town was was more important than thou shalt not murder. Yeah, that's true. The commandments hadn't come out yet, then. Yeah, that that was that one that was that was part of the remake, the Thou Shalt Not Kill. <laughs> so the, the, the unabridged version of the Ten Commandments. Yeah. All right, that's gonna do it for this edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. Uh if you had any feedback, any notes for us, give us an email at feedback at get your film Check us out on our socials at uh, Get Your Film Fix Podcast. And just a quick note, we're going to be off next week, but that'll just give you guys more opportunity to email in. And we'd love to hear from you, and maybe we'll have a longer section when we come back um, featuring your questions. So uh, think of them, send them in, feedback at getyourfilmfixpodcast.com, and we hope to hear from you. I'm staying. I'm finishing my coffee. Enjoying my coffee.